The date was June 1st, 2002. I can remember standing in the back of our ceremony site where Kelly Hester and me were getting married. I was 22 years old. And with every step I took towards that altar, my excitement grew. I mean, I was so in love with this woman. She had captured my heart. She had pointed me to Jesus. And I couldn't wait to spend the rest of my life with her. If you would have told me on that day that there would be seasons in our marriage that would be difficult, that would be hard, that there would be a few bumps in the road, I would have said that you were crazy. I had my eyes and heart filled with wedded bliss. But the reality is, and you know this if you're married or have been married, the reality is that marriage is difficult sometimes, isn't it? That learning to live with somebody else is a challenge. I don't know about you, but one of the things marriage has taught me most is that I'm a fairly selfish person. So learning to love somebody and give myself to somebody else hasn't been smooth sailing for me. And if it wasn't challenging before this COVID lockdown season, my guess is that this season itself has been fairly challenging. Um, living together constantly, that maybe those idiosyncrasies start to drive you a little bit more crazy. The dishes left in the sink, the clothes left by the bedside, the loud chewing or the constant chatter, just a few things that people have shared are driving them a little bit crazy. <laughs> Yeah, one columnist wrote, If absence makes the heart grow fonder, the opposite might be true. Too much time spent in close quarters is a challenge. As Chaucer wrote in 1386, familiarity breeds contempt. Yet what they're finding in China is fascinating because as these COVID lockdowns start to be um, lightened up there, their divorce rate has spiked roughly 25%. I mean, think about it. There is talk about marriage all over in our cultural moment, certainly within the church, about what a godly marriage looks like and how we can live with one another and honor each other well, but also outside of the church. I mean, millions and millions of people tuned into The Bachelor to see if Peter would find love and get married. Just this last year, one of the movies nominated for Best Picture was called, uh, for Best Picture of the Academy Awards, is called Marriage Story. It was a movie about um, the difficulty of marriage and the pain of a broken marriage and the heartache of divorce. Yeah, marriage is a subject that we talk about because it's a subject that matters. It matters on every square inch of the globe. And as much disagreement as there is about marriage in our culture in general, there's a few things that we can all agree on. First, we all long for healthy relationships, marriages included, that our personal lives and society as a whole are better when marriages flourish. But the second thing is also true. I think we all recognize that something is broken, that something's off. 
with the divorce rates hovering around 50%, most would say that this is in need of fixing. And today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at what the scriptures have to say about this much debated topic. We're going to look at what the scriptures have to say about, about marriage and how to get unstuck and how to have a marriage that's flourishing. Now, just, just quick time out. If you're not married today, I don't want you to hit pause. I don't want you to tune out. Please lean in for two reasons. Number one, you might be married someday. Number two, the principles that we're gonna talk about today are applicable to all the relationships that we have in our lives. See, it seems like forever ago, but before this COVID lockdown season, we were studying the book of Ephesians. You remember that? (laughs) We called the series Revision. And today we're jumping back into this series on the book of Ephesians. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. I would invite you to open your Bible and to turn there now. Most of the time, most of the time, I get emails from people after I give a message. (laughs) But this time, I got emails before giving this message. Because this passage is widely debated. There's a number of different perspectives on it. And in all honesty, it's been misused and abused in a number of different ways. And it's been used to dominate and to oppress people. And so today what I'd like to do is invite you to reimagine what the early church might have heard as they read this letter that Paul was sending to the church at Ephesus. Just a little bit of context before we jump in. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul made this statement, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And so back when we left off this series, we said that imitation is the sincerest form of apprenticeship, of discipleship. And Paul encouraged the church to walk in love, to walk as light, and to walk in the way of wisdom. And now he's going to start to unpack in a little bit more detail what that looks like on the canvas of our lives. Now, As we jump into verse 21, here's what you're going to notice. If you open your Bible, most Bibles, depending on the translation you have, have a break, a heading break that says wives and husbands in between verses 21 and 22. That's not insignificant. We'll talk about why in just a moment. But I'm actually starting this teaching one verse earlier in verse 21. And listen to what verse 21 says says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's this word that we have to define. It's going to shape much of our study together today. It's the word submit, or in the Greek, it's the word hupotasso. When used as a military term, which it was certainly that at certain times, it means a, a subordinate. But when it was used in general civilian terms, it simply meant to cooperate. But here's the deal with this word, a hupotasso. It means to come under someone or to place yourself under someone. 
So, look back at the text with me. Who is called to submit? Well, we all are. We all are. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We are all called as followers of Jesus to place ourselves under each other. Instead of over each other in the place of dominance or in the place of importance, we're called to place ourselves under each other. This is the vision that Paul has for the church, that it would be a a place of mutual submission. See, this idea of mutual submission would have run completely contrary to what most people in the ancient world would have thought. But the Apostle Paul tells us why he wants us to do that. He says it's, it's not because the people around you are deserving. It's not because they've earned this in some way or that you owe it to them. No, 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 no. He says submit to one another. You can see it right in the text out of reverence for Christ. See, our submission or placing ourselves under each other is part of our worship. We're we're no longer, because we're in Jesus, we are no longer determining our conduct based on our culture or our circumstances, but we are following Jesus as our model. And here's what I want to invite you to write down in your notes today. Our reverence for Jesus shapes all of our earthly relationships. Our reverence for Jesus shapes all of our earthly relationships. And the way that we relate to each other, especially in marriage, we'll talk about that in just a moment, the way that we relate to each other tells the world around us the story of what we think God is like. We get to display the grace that we've received from God on the canvas of every relationship that we have. And friends, this is a beautiful invitation to live out the gospel. So the Apostle Paul makes this statement that our relationship with Jesus and our reverence for him shapes all of our earthly relationships. And then he goes to talk about marriage and children in the home and our workplace environments. See, he applies it not to the areas of the most glitz and the most glamour, but in the real nitty-gritty, everyday situations that we find our lives in, that the story we tell about what God is like happens on the canvas of our everyday life. And listen to the way that the Apostle Paul begins to apply this concept to marriage. Here's what he writes in verses 22 through 24 of chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, that is not a popular verse today. But it's really interesting. If you look on the screen, I've highlighted in yellow the words that aren't in the original manuscript. I'll tell you why they're there in just a moment, but let me read verse 22 to you again. Wives, 
as to your own husbands, as to the Lord. That verb submit isn't there. Should it be in the translation? Yes, absolutely, 100%, it should. Because this idea is being carried down from verse 21. It's the exact same idea that Paul presented there, where he said, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And under that banner of submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, Paul wants to make a special point of how important this is within marriages. Yeah, wives are called in a unique way to submit to their husbands out of reverence for Christ. Now, we read this through our lens in the 21st century, and we go, wow, that seems um, maybe even a little bit oppressive or a little bit archaic. But everybody in this first century would have gone, well, yeah, absolutely. That's what Wives do. There was nothing that was controversial about this in the first century. But Paul went on to write, and he went on to say, and he's describing for us what this looks like. He talks about the fact that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Which begs the question, what does that mean? That Greek word that's translated head is the word kephale, and um, it could mean one of two things, either head in hierarchy or head in source. The, the, The head is the provider for the rest of the body. You know, that's the way, the second, that second way is the way that Paul has already used this word in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Listen to what he said. He said, rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. For from whom the whole body is joined and held together and every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, Paul says Christ is the head. He holds the body together and he provides for the body and cares for the body. In the same way, the husband is called to be the head, the source, the provider for his wife. So the command to wives is, no, don't leave and don't try to dominate and don't try to domineer. And Paul's challenge for wives is really, really clear. And I'd encourage you to write this down. Wives, allow yourself to be loved and led. That's what submission means. Allow yourself to be loved and led. In a world that says fight for your rights and in a world that says get yours, Paul's saying, no, no, the way that marriage actually works best and and the way to learn to love each other and learn to give your best to one another, wives, allow yourself to be loved and led. But a number of the emails that I got before giving this message were about the way that this passage has been abused. And see, one of the mistakes we make is that we read verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We read verse 22 and think that it omits or overrides verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Are wives called to submit to their husbands? Yes, absolutely. Are husbands called to submit to their wives? 
yes, absolutely. Verse 21, we're all called to submit to one another. And I'd encourage you to write this down. The particulars do not override the universals. I mean, think of how crazy it would be if we tried to do that with other passages. For example, take 1 Timothy chapter 3. It talks about elders in the church. And it says that elders should be self-controlled, not given to drunkenness, and not greedy, amongst other things. Think of it if we read that and said, well, only elders are supposed to do that. Everybody else, they can get drunk and be greedy, and they don't have to worry about self-control at all, even though it's a fruit of the Spirit. See, we don't do that with other passages, and if we're going to have a consistent hermeneutic, which I think is so important, we can't do it with this passage either. There are 59 one another's in the scripture, and none of them override each other. They simply come alongside of one another and give us a picture of what it looks like to be followers of the way of Jesus. No unique application of any of these commands nullifies the general call for every follower of Jesus to live them out. So mutual submission within a marriage means that while submission happens in both parties, it looks different. It looks different for a husband and for a wife. But here's the second thing that we just need to explain about this passage because it's so important. Let me unpack what submission doesn't mean. It means placing yourself under someone to be, allow them to love you and lead you. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that as a wife, you need to put up with a husband who's abusing you. Please hear me on that. If you are a woman who's in that situation, we want you to reach out to us and we want to be able to walk with you and we want to move toward, help you move towards health and wholeness and healing. And if you're a husband who's abusing and mistreating your wife, can I as gently and pastorally plead with you to reach out, get help, invite us in, let us walk with you, repent confess, turn to Jesus and trust that he wants to restore and he wants to heal. You see, I think if a husband has to tell his wife to submit, he's already lost. And if he has to tell his wife to submit, he's probably not living out the call that Paul will give to husbands in just a moment. But here's the second thing it mean, it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, submission doesn't mean that you shouldn't think of yourself and that you shouldn't have any opinion whatsoever. Submission is not the same thing as subjugation. See, subjugation turns a person into a thing. It destroys individuality and removes all liberty. No, women still are called to have a say in the direction and the formation of, of their family. And here's the last thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you need to follow your husband into sin. No, submission to your husband is not a substitute for obedience to Jesus. And I would just invite you to look at Acts chapter 5, verse 29. That's heavy, but it's all embedded within our culture's way of reading this text. And in light of some of the ways it's been abused, it's really important for us to talk about that. Because our reverence for Jesus shapes every relationship that we have. And for wives, it significantly shapes the way that you interact with your husband. So think about how different the relational landscape of our world would be 
if out of reverence for Christ, we submitted to one another. Um, Think about how different marriages would be if wives were willing to say, I'm willing to allow myself to be loved and led. See, but Paul doesn't stop with wives. He, he doesn't let the husbands off. And here's what he says to the husbands in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives or agape your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, we want to apply the same hermeneutic that we did to verses 22 through 24. And so we wouldn't want to read this, husbands love your wives, and assume, well, then the wives must not have to love their husbands, right? That would be crazy. No, in John chapter 13, we have really clear instruction for every follower of Jesus. He says this, a new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. The the particulars don't override the universals. And how are husbands supposed to love their wives? This is what most New Testament commands go back to. Just as Christ, just as Christ loved the church. He makes this point uniquely and emphatically for husbands. And I'd invite you to write this down. Husbands lead. We lead through service and sacrifice. Remember how I said that everybody in the ancient world, when they heard this idea, wives submit to your husbands, would have gone, well, sure, duh, we get that. Nobody would have thought the same thing about this command. See, it's the exact opposite. It's flipped in the opposite way for our cultural moment as it was for them. We here submit to your husbands and we go, wow, that's, that's different. And they would have heard husbands love your wives and thought, well, that's a little bit extreme. Don't you think? It was so different for them. Listen to Apollondrus, a Greek historian. He talks about the marriage dynamic in the ancient Roman world. And here's what he says. We, and he's meaning men, we have mistresses for pleasure, prostitutes for daily service of our bodies, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. This was normal talk in the ancient Roman world. But followers of Jesus were called to something very different. They were called, husbands were called to monogamous, covenantal, committed love. They were called to agape their wives, to live with the settled intention to fight for the good and the flourishing of their spouse. And this would have been shockingly controversial in the ancient world. Yeah, in the ancient world, husbands were in the position of power. And that meant in the way that they interacted and the way that they led, it meant if you were in the position of power, everybody else served you. Your needs were primary. Your needs were the utmost and everybody else made sure that those needs were met. But Jesus flips this idea on its head. Listen to what he says in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. It says, and he's talking to his disciples, Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. This is the exact opposite of submission, right? 
They lord it over. They're over instead of under. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, husbands may have been first back in that day, but Jesus says, if you're first, use your firstness to advocate for the people who are in the position of lastness. Use your power to influence other people for good. Or you might even want to write this down. Use power to prop others up, not to push them down. See, because marriage isn't about getting our expectations met. It's about extending love. It's about advocating for the good of the other. So how does the Apostle Paul says that, teach us that this plays out uniquely amongst Christian men and Christian husbands? Great question. Listen to what he writes, verse 26 through 27. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This beautiful picture of Jesus preparing his bride, and he tells husbands, uh, do the same for your bride. There's a lot of debate about what this term washing of the water of the word means. Some people think it means that um, husbands were to read their wives' scripture, and, and many wives back in that day would have been illiterate. So that would make sense. The challenge with that interpretation, though, is that not a lot of people had a copy of the scriptures back in that day. I think maybe what Paul means is the washing of the water of the word is that husbands would, would speak a good word over their wives, that they would encourage their wives, that they would tell their wives that they're beautiful and that they are for them, that they would build them up. We all know that words have the power to either bring life or to bring death. And certainly, reading the scripture together is a really good and healthy thing, and we should do that, but I don't know that that's exactly what Paul is thinking about here. Yeah, husbands are called to consistently and faithfully fight for the wholeness and health and flourishing of their wives. But there's a second way that Paul instructs husbands to love their wives. Here's what he says. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does for the church, because we're members of his body. It's really interesting because Paul is just simply uh, repackaging the golden rule, the rule that Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And he says specifically in this case, husbands, what if, what if you loved your wife in the same way that you wanted to be loved? It's a great grid. How would I want to be treated? How would I want to be interacted with? How would I want to be talked to? 
See, I think Jesus and Paul talk about the idea of being loved, loving others in the way that we want to be loved because it's ultimately realistic. <laughs> it's never ethereal or theological, it's practical. And Paul uses these two words to draw out what he means. The first is to nourish, which means that we, we feed towards maturity and wholeness. I love that picture, that husbands nourish their wives. And the second is to cherish. That word cherish means to warm or to comfort. Husbands, you, you might want to use that as a pickup line tonight. I'd like to cherish you. Yeah, I, I had a great model of this growing up. My dad was such a, a godly, is such a godly man. And the way that he loved my mom gave a picture for me of what it looked like for Christ to love his church and what it looks like for a husband to love his wife. See, my mom was, was sick for about a year and a half before she passed away. She had an undiagnosed brain condition and her physical abilities slowly diminished over the course of that year and a half. My dad had always been a humble, godly leader, but wow, I saw him live in the way of Jesus in that year and a half like I've seen very few other people ever do. The care that he showed for her, the love that he showed for her, the nurturing, the cherishing, the loving as he would have wanted to be loved set for me a great example of what this passage looks like lived out. One of the greatest honors and challenges I've ever had is speaking at my mom's memorial. But I'd love to read you a section of what I said during that memorial that talked about both my mom and my dad and the way that their marriage, I think, lived out Ephesians chapter five. I said this, I think my mom is quite at home in heaven. See, my mom was used to being loved unconditionally. She was used to being cared for and cherished. The scriptures teach husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I said, Dad, you did that so well that I'm not sure that there is a woman more at home in heaven. The way you loved her prepared her well for an eternity of being loved. The way you cared for her over the past year prepared her for an eternity of being cared for. The way you upheld her with your right arm prepared her well for being caught up into the loving arms of Jesus. The way you snuggled her on the couch when life was slipping from her body prepared her to be held by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. She transitioned seamlessly from looking at the face of her husband who loved her and sacrificed for her to looking at her Savior who gave his life on the cross on her behalf. If as husbands we're called to love our wife as Christ loved his church and gave himself up for us, I don't know a person who's done a better job, and therefore, I don't know a woman who's more at home in heaven. I want to finish the race that way. I want to help Kelly prepare for heaven by loving her so well. And she's doing the same for me, friends. This is what a healthy, life-giving marriage looks like. Yeah, wives allowing themselves to be loved and led and husbands loving through service and sacrifice. This is what the way of Jesus looks like on the canvas 
of a marriage. So do, do you have this picture in your head? One of a wife who allows herself to be loved and led and uh, one of a husband who loves through sacrifice and service, that that's the way that he leads. Yeah, that's a beautiful picture. And then Paul concludes this section and listen to what he says. I think it's the greatest Jesus juke of all time. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he's going, I'm I'm sort of not talking about marriage at all. I'm talking about Christ and the way that he loves and the way that he cares for his church. However, he says, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's his, that's his conclusion and his summary of all that he's been saying. But did you catch it? He's saying that it's painting a picture on the canvas of our lives of the goodness and the grace of God. Yeah, the Christian life is about living into a story, a, a, a marriage story. It's not about just believing in certain doctrine. It's about living out the divine drama that's being told throughout the cosmos. After all, the scriptures say that we, the church, are the bride of Christ. And he's the one who demonstrated his love for us first. He's the one who got down on his hands and knees and washed our feet. He's the one who extended his arms and gave his life for us on the cross as a sacrificial atonement for our sins. He's the one who's our good shepherd, who's caring for our needs. And what Paul says, is when husbands and wives love each other and care for each other the way that Jesus loves and cares for us, we paint a picture on the canvas of our lives of the goodness of the gospel. Yet you might want to write this down. A flourishing marriage paints a picture of divine love. But painting this picture takes two. It's sort of like riding a bike. If you've ever tried riding a bike only pushing one leg down, you know that it's really difficult to get going anywhere. But when both legs are pushing, both legs are engaged, you can soar. It's the same picture that Paul is painting of a healthy marriage. So as we close our time together, let me just invite you to spend some time thinking. Uh, Paul gave us the summary in verse 33 when he said, Let each one of you love his wife as himself. So if you're a husband, let me invite you today to really think about what's, what's one or two practical ways that you could show agape, love, to your wife. And he says this, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. So wives, how might you show respect and honor to your husband. What might that look like today? How could you make that really, really practical? Because the gospel of grace is painted on the canvas of our lives. 
As Paul will write in the book of Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Yeah, that's the way, that's the way that our reverence for Jesus shapes every earthly relationship that we have.